Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee, yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we begin our study of God's word this morning, we need to make sure we're in fellowship, so we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to use 1 John 1, nine if necessary. Make sure we're ready to put aside all the distractions about the coming day and last week and the weather and everything else and focus on the word this morning. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this opportunity again to gather together to fellowship around the teaching of your word. We thank you that you give us this freedom through this nation in which we live. You continue to protect us, to provide for us. This last week you watched over our president as he flew to Baghdad. Father, you continue to watch over us and protect us in many unseen ways. We have no idea the dimensions of the restraint of the Holy Spirit with regard to evil in this land. And even though we see so many evidences of negative volition, perversion, and apostasy, we know that nevertheless we are still protected and that there are still many positive believers in this country. Father, we continue to pray for our president that you would watch over him, keep him safe, that you would give him wisdom, clarity, the right information to make good decisions from a position of strength. Father, we pray for... Uh, us this morning. We pray for the fact that we realize that we should be studying your word, applying it consistently, but so often we get distracted by the details of life. Father, we pray that you would strengthen us, that we might recognize the importance of priorities, the importance of, of what you are working in our lives, the priority of your plan in our life, and that we need to address that in our own souls, and the basis for doing that is the Word of God. So, Father, now as we study your Word, we pray that you would challenge us with what we learn and study this morning. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. I think something that we've all experienced at one point in time in our life is that that uh, some situation, some topic, some event in life, some learning situation occurs, and we know it's not the first time we ever faced this issue or heard this issue, but as we were growing up through junior high, high school, we probably heard it, but we just were not tuned in to that particular uh, situation or issue in our life. 
and that is where you mature, some event happens, some situation happens that just sort of crystallizes that particular issue for us. And for me, it's one event in, in my life stands out when I think about the word priority. I remember sitting on, uh, on, uh, sitting on the bed in Randy Price's dorm room at Dallas Seminary. He was in his first year and I was up there getting a, scoping out the, um, campus and going to the bookstore and being indoctrinated in the ways of being a bibliophile by, uh, Randy Price. And we were talking about courses and course demands and work demands in seminary. And Randy said to me that he pointed out, he said, Robbie, you, one of the most important things you have to decide now before you come to seminary is what your priorities are. Because when you get to seminary and you have to be in class seven, eight hours a day, and then you have seven or eight hours worth of studying to do when you get home, you have to decide what's important and what's not. And you have to realize that there are a lot of things in life that are fun and enjoyable and that you've been doing perhaps for many years that you can't do anymore simply because to do them will distract you from the task at hand, which is to uh, master the Word of God, master the academics in seminary. And that was something I needed to hear at that time and something that seemed to hit home. And I frequently thought about that as the ensuing years went by as I went through my my years at Dallas Seminary and then on into the pastorate. Lesson on learning to prioritize, to decide what's important in our lives, where we're headed in our life, and to be able to discern what in our life is a distraction. It may be good, it may be fun, it may be something we really enjoy doing, but yet it's a distraction to God's plan for our life. There are many things in life that we enjoy doing. I think in 20th and 21st century America, we are just enmeshed in a society of pleasure. And we are surrounded through commercials, through the activities of so many of our friends and our peers. We're just surrounded with a culture that says, do this, do that, try everything. We don't realize how many things we get to do in our culture that is so luxury-based, where we have so many time-saving devices, that our grandparents and our great-grandparents never even had the privilege of thinking about, simply because we have time-saving labor devices, we only work 40-hour work weeks or 50-hour work weeks, and we have so much more affluence and money and opportunity. We can go get on an airplane and take a vacation and go skiing in the Rocky Mountains and be back a week later. We can go on cruises. We can do all kinds of wonderful Fun things. You can get involved in all kinds of hobbies and people have a certain amount of disposable income that they use on things they enjoy doing, hunting, fishing, biking, whatever it may be. You know what your hobbies are and you know what your values are, but in many, many cases what I see in the life of so many believers is that those things that you enjoy doing in life are the biggest distraction to you ever making it and being a success in the Christian life because you, it keeps you from your number one priority, which is to study the Word and to grow spiritually. When it's all said and done, it doesn't matter how much time you spend, even with your family. Families can easily be uh, become an idol. Marriage can become an idol. Uh, it doesn't matter what happens when it's all over with and the rapture occurs and you're standing before the Lord Jesus Christ at the Bema seat. The only one thing is going to matter, 
and that is the level of spiritual maturity you reached during these 50, 60, 70, 80 years that God allots you here on earth. That's it. doesn't matter how much fun you had. doesn't matter how much pleasure you had. doesn't matter how great, uh, great you great a time you had with your various hobbies or good times or your family. The only thing that is going to matter is the level of spiritual maturity that you've reached. And that is what underlies this last verse in 1 Corinthians 12 and on into chapter 13. There is an emphasis here on priorities. What is the best? I remember years ago, it must have been before I went to seminary, somebody gave me a tape of some message by Dr. Howard Hendricks at Dallas Seminary. And in that message, Dr. Hendricks made a point, another point that I've never forgotten. He said, what destroys most people in their Christian life is not a choice between good and sin. It's between what's good and what's best. And most people choose what's good instead of what's best. And as a result, they're just failures in their spiritual life. And they don't even realize it. Once again, that comes back to priorities. Anytime we talk about the difference between a comparative what's better, and a superlative, what's best. You're talking about priorities. You're talking about values. What is really important in life? When you take everything else away, what is it that has enduring value that you're going to carry with you beyond the rapture? And that's what Paul emphasizes here as we get into 1 Corinthians chapter uh, 13. The introduction 2.13 is really laid in the last verse of chapter 12, which we just touched on last time. And here we read, but earnestly desire the best gifts. See, there's that word best. It immediately involves the decision-making between better or good and that which is best. Paul says, earnestly desire the best, and yet I show you, and as we'll see when we get into the exegesis of the verse, it's not a more excellent way, it is the most excellent way, that which is best. And what we will see when we get into chapter 13 is that is a path, a path that involves pursuit of spiritual maturity that is exemplified by the three spiritual skills that we talk about in terms of the love triplex, personal love for God, impersonal love for all mankind, and occupation with Christ. In this verse, Paul uses a certain amount of irony and tongue-in-cheek, which he's typically done as he's talked to the Corinthians in this epistle. There's been a certain amount of sanctified sarcasm. At other places, he's just verbally slapped them in the face. And throughout this section, he is calling attention to the fact that the one thing that is lacking in their whole spiritual life is spirituality, which would be exemplified by love. They're the carnal Christians who are living their life like mere men back in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. They're operating on arrogance. There's inordinate competition 
exemplified in the congregation by competition between spiritual gifts. And there's no room for competition between spiritual gifts. Every spiritual gift is valuable, and you can't compete over it because it's not up to you what spiritual gift you have or the degree to which you have it. That's up to God the Holy Spirit. And the issue is, how are you going to use that spiritual gift to serve the body of Christ? And what underlies the whole concept of Christian service is understanding this whole concept of personal love for God and impersonal love for all mankind. So what we're going to see in this section is a contrast, a contrast between the carnal believer on the one hand and the spiritual believer on the other hand. Now, what is it that that characterizes the life of the carnal believer? He's operating on the sin nature. So here we have our sin nature, and remember the key orientation of that sin nature is arrogance. Arrogance is me first. We have the five arrogant skills that we've studied. In contrast, you have the spiritual believer, the believer who is filled with the Spirit and is walking by the Spirit. And if we were, we're not going to take the time, we've gone over it enough. If we go to our passage in Galatians 5, Starting actually in 5.14, the command there is goes back to the Leviticus uh, uh, 19.18 passage, to love one another as you love yourself. So the subject in Galatians 5 is love. The command is to walk by the Spirit, and the result of that walk is fruit, and the very first fruit is love. So the basic orientation of the, of the believer... Walking by the Spirit is going to be love. Now, that may not be a mature love, because when you're an immature believer, you haven't learned enough doctrine yet to be expressing a mature love, but you are going to be able to start manifesting certain elements of this as you begin to grow and uh, advance in the spiritual life. But I thought that before we look at the positive characteristics of love, when we get into verse, or get into chapter 13, I want to look at a failure checklist, just sort of a mirror that you can hold up from the Word of God in your own life to see how well you're doing. And the reason I do this is because the orientation of arrogance is such that it's great, one of its greatest skills is self-justification. Self-justification means that, that most of the time we sit and listen to the Word of God and think about how it applies to somebody else. And when we're beaten, being beaten over the head with the uh, frying pan of the Word of God, we're saying, hmm, that applies to somebody else, that's not me. And so what I want to do this morning is try to hold up the mirror of the Word of God and make you uncomfortable. That, oh, wait a minute, I shouldn't do that. That's not the way for churches to grow. We all have to go away feeling good about God and ourselves. Oh, well... I missed that. I must have missed those courses in seminary. Okay, we have five arrogant skills that we have studied. They start with self-absorption. This is not anything you have to learn. Those of you who are parents know that that is the orientation of that brand new baby that you had and that he did not or she did not have to learn anything about self-absorption. Self-absorption leads to self-indulgence 
where we just start giving in to whatever our desires are. Self-indulgence then leads to self-justification. In self-justification, we come up with all kinds of rationales in order to justify whatever course of action we're taking in life. Self-justification then leads to self-deception. We tell these lies to ourselves long enough to where we no longer can see the truth. We're blinded by our own arrogance. And that leads to self-deification, where our will is more important than God's will, and that is exactly the sin of Satan as expressed in the five I wills in Isaiah 14. Well, let's look at how the, these five arrogant skills operate. In self-absorption, we always find some excuse for not being in Bible class, some reason not to listen to a tape, some chore that has to be done around the house to keep us from reading our Bible or getting involved in Bible memory. There's always something to do at work. I think in the last 10 years I've seen more people become consumed with work than I saw in the previous two decades. We've always got folks who are uh, inclined towards work, working more than they ought. There's always pressure from some jobs to work 50, 60, 70 hours. But when that interferes with your biblical priorities as a believer, then your work has become an idol and a distraction to your spiritual life. Many people get involved in hobbies. It wasn't long ago I was talking with a friend of mine who was pastoring in an area where there's a tremendous amount of of things to do on the weekend out in uh, Washington State within you know, an hour, hour and a half of his church, you can go skiing on the weekend, you can go camping, backpacking, fishing. There's hardly a recreational activity that's not available within an hour, hour and a half of the church. And on the weekends, it's extremely difficult to get people to realize that I don't care how much you enjoy fishing, skiing, backpacking, hiking, climbing, having fun, when you get to the judgment seat of Christ, that isn't going to matter. And so what happens on the weekends, and he has an odd situation, he might have a little more attendance on midweek Bible class than on Sunday morning. So you get people who are just self-absorbed. They have all kinds of things that they enjoy doing that are fun to do, good to do. They're not immoral. They're not wrong. They're not illegal. They are distractions. So in self-absorption, there's always some sort of excuse related to what is best for me, me, me. We can always find some way. I worked hard this week. After all, I deserve this, don't I? I've worked hard. I've made the money. I ought to be able to go out and enjoy the good life. So we decide to indulge ourselves. We go from self-absorption where we're focusing on these things we want to do, and now we can afford to do them. So we indulge our desires. We give in to those self-absorbed inclinations. We stay at home on Sunday morning, sleep a little later, because after all, I got up every morning this last week at 5 o'clock and went to work and didn't get home from work until 6.30 or 7. By the time I got to sleep at 11 o'clock after doing a few things around the house and spending time with the little kids and had to get up at 5, when Sunday morning comes, it's the first opportunity I have to sleep late, so I'll just sleep late. And I've known people who have destroyed their spiritual life simply because they wanted to sleep away Sunday morning. 
So we stay at home or we give in to the, the job or the boss and somehow we let whatever else we're doing in the week distract so we don't make it to Bible class. We give in to pressures from the kids, uh, whatever it may be that we're getting our children involved in, and we have to transport them here and there. We have to uh, work a little extra perhaps to pay for college or whatever it may be, but it ends up being a distraction to our own spiritual life. So in self-indulgence, we give in to the desire for, for pleasure or emotional fulfillment in whatever area of life uh, we enjoy. Rather than mastering our schedule and our life, we let our schedule and our pleasures master our spiritual life. We make an idol out of our self-indulgent passions, and then we serve it. Then we move to the third stage, because in self-indulgence every now and then, God the Holy Spirit is pricking our conscience, and we know that we ought to be in Bible class, but now we have to come up with some uh, more complex and and more feasible justifications for not being involved in class, not being involved in local church, and, and as we're going to see, not even involved in terms of, of um, Christian service. See, Christian service may not be the means to spiritual advance, but Christian service is not an option. Christian service is part of the package you got at salvation, which included being a royal ambassador for the Lord Jesus Christ. As part of being a royal ambassador for the Lord Jesus Christ, you received certain responsibilities that went along with that. Responsibilities is another word for obligations. Now, this isn't legalism. I remember Years ago, I uh, used that term obligation. I said, you know, you have an obligation as a believer to be in Bible class every time the doors are open to learn the word. Oh, that's legalism. No, it's not legalism. Let me give you an illustration. If I were to give you a vehicle, let's say I gave you a brand new 2003 Cadillac. It's your car, your name is on the title, no strings attached, I'm giving it to you. I've not said a thing. But there's an obligation that goes with that car, that goes with ownership. You have to make sure the air in the tires is good. You have to change the oil. You have to get a tune-up. You have to put gas in the car. You have to take care of it mechanically. You have to take care of it physically, keep it clean. But if you don't take care of those inherent obligations, then what happens is that car is not going to be any good for you. It's just going to sit up on blocks out in your driveway, and you're going to look like somebody who... who uh, uh, lives in the backwoods of Arkansas. That's what we'd say in Texas or backwoods of Maine, I guess you'd say up here or West Virginia. But you're gonna, it's not going to do you any good whatsoever. See, the obligation is not to get the spiritual life or to keep the spiritual life. That's yours forever. The inherent obligation is that you have a responsibility. God saved us for a purpose according to Ephesians 2.10, and that is for good works. That's for divine good, for the production of divine good, because you are saved to be a testimony in the angelic conflict. You weren't saved so that you could sit on your butt and say, oh, thank God, I'm not going to go to hell. Now I can just live my life however I wish. There are responsibilities and there are roles for you in the plan of God and in the body of Christ that are important. The rest of the body suffers, we've seen in 1 Corinthians 12, when anyone doesn't fulfill their responsibilities and obligations. But in self-justification, 
we come up with at least 15 reasons to legitimize our absence and failure to be a Bible class, our, our not uh, memorizing Scripture, our not applying doctrine, our not advancing. We convince ourselves that we're, we're positive and we have enough because we're just coasting along on whatever we got five or ten years ago when we were in church or whatever we grew up learning in, in prep school. And so we legitimize our absence today on the basis of trumped-up reasons just to justify our own negative volition, and that's what it is. You see, too often people think negative volition is hostility to doctrine. The most negative people are not the ones who are hostile to doctrine, it's the ones who are passive to doctrine. When you're not showing up in Bible class two or three times a week to take in the Word, you're hostile to doctrine. It's a passive hostility because what you are saying is it really isn't important. I can live my life without it. And that's no different from an atheist. In fact, it's functional atheism because you're saying God has no real significant role in my life. So in uh, self-justification, we develop all kinds of reasons for not being there. Now we have deceived ourselves. We think we're making it because there aren't any serious problems. We, our marriage isn't falling apart. The kids aren't being arrested for dealing in, dealing drugs down at the down at the high school. We think that somehow everything is going going smoothly, and you're just coasting on the grace of God. You're coasting on residual benefits from blessing by association in the past, and God is giving you basically enough rope to hang yourself. So self-deception, you think it all the doctrine applies to somebody else, that what I'm saying this morning doesn't really apply to you, it applies to somebody else, or maybe it doesn't apply, you're not even thinking that because you're not here this morning. And then that leads to self-deification. We go from self-deception, where it doesn't apply to us, to self-deification, where we react defensively and in anger when somebody challenges us with our lack of concern for doctrine. And that just shows there's no humility and no teachability. And that is the foundation. As we're going to see, before you can get to love, personal love or impersonal love in chapter 13, there has to be a foundation of grace orientation which includes humility and teachability. Now, the point that I'm making here in the context of 1 Corinthians 12 is that God the Holy Spirit sovereignly gave you a spiritual gift for the benefit of the body of Christ at the instant that you trusted Christ as your Savior. He didn't give it to you to use on yourself. It's not used for self-edification, which is how the charismatics always wanted to find the gift of tongues as some sort of prayer language or Holy Spirit language to enhance their spiritual life. The Holy Spirit sovereignly gave these spiritual gifts so that we could mature spiritually and use them to the benefit of others. It's not self. See, that's the contrast. The carnal believer operates on self, 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 and self. And the believer operates on an orientation to doctrine, an orientation to God, and an orientation to the plan of God. Now, if you're a failure then in the spiritual life, then you've noticed some similarity between the operation of the five arrogant skills and your spiritual life. Second thing that, that develops 
as the person who is a failure in the spiritual life is something I alluded to already, and that is a facade of involvement. This is the person who shows up once a week, the nod to God crowd. But let me tell you what positive volition actually looks like. You've seen the picture I've used several times when I've come back from Ukraine of the little old woman there who has arthritis so bad that she's bent up and she walks with her back parallel to the ground, has a cane that she walks with that's all of two feet long. It doesn't need to be any longer because she's so gnarled up. And every year I see her, she gets out of a taxi cab and walks one or two inches at a time, takes her 20 minutes to get to, to walk about 30 feet from that cab to the front door of the building and then about 10 minutes to just get up the stairs to where the church meets. And whether there's ice on the sidewalk or whether um, uh, there's a, the weather's bad, uh, the weather's cold, she is there every single week if she can get a ride, at least from her home, to the church. Positive volition doesn't utilize excuses for not being at class. Positive volition looks like this. It looks like people that I've known who've given up lucrative jobs to move across the country just so they can be in a local church where they can get solid face-to-face teaching with doctrine and have a job that pays them less than half of what they could get paid somewhere else in the country because doctrine is the priority. Positive volition looks like people who give up hobbies, give up travel, give up entertainment in order to serve in prep school, in order to be involved on the mission field, to do just simple things like cleaning a local church and realize that if they're not there, it's not going to be done, so I'm not going to take a vacation. It's amazing the personal sacrifice that people don't talk about that's involved in what keeps most churches, most ministries going. It's people who understand the priority of the spiritual life. Third thing, I alluded to this already as well, and that is that negative volition and arrogance is not simply hostility to the word. It is passivity to the word. It's apathy to the word. It's people who think that somehow I have enough. Frankly, you never will have enough. Not before you're absent from the body and face-to-face with the Lord. You're not going to remember enough. Lord knows I've spent 35 years in in Christian ministry and serious study of the Word of God, and I don't think I'm beginning to scratch the surface in terms of my own understanding of the Word, number one, and number two, in terms of my own application of the Word. And just a little a fortiori argument, not that I'm holding myself up as a model, but if that's true for someone like myself, then that's true for so many other people. You just don't have a legitimate excuse for not being in class and getting involved in applying doctrine. That is why Paul challenges these arrogant Corinthians by saying, earnestly desire the best gifts. And the verb that he uses here is the verb zelao. It is a second-person plural, which means he is addressing this to the entire congregation, which is... Pretty typical of the way Paul has addressed them, addressed the, uh, and, <coughs> excuse me, has addressed the imperatives of this epistle. They are all addressed to the congregation as a whole in the plural, but they apply to each individual in the congregation. It is a present imperative indicating that this is supposed to be the ongoing standard operating procedure in the life of the believer. 
Now, what's interesting here is we have to pay attention to what comes after this, the, the accused of case, the object of the verb. He says, desire, sincerely desire the best gifts. Now, this word zelao has, it has some different meanings in the Greek. It can have a positive sense and it can have a negative sense, such as to be jealous. But in the positive sense, it means to be positively and intensely interested in something, to strive for something, to desire something. Well, we don't work for spiritual gifts. We don't exert ourselves for spiritual gifts. But it also has the idea of to be dedicated, to be deeply interested in someone or something. And the emphasis here is to be intensely interested in the best gifts. Now, that word translated best is the Greek word megas, which is a comparative adjective. But in the Greek, you had a funny thing take place with regard to adjectives, comparatives and superlatives when in the development of Koine Greek. And the superlative pretty much dropped out by the time of the first century. So you have to judge from context. And what you have here is what's called the elative use of the comparative adjective. So what Paul is saying is don't desire the better gifts, but desire the best gifts. Now, there's an interesting wordplay here. There's almost a little tongue-in-cheek irony taking place here because of the structure of this whole section. He's going to make a contrast in the in the second half of the verse. He says, and yet I show you, and what we'll see when we get there is that should be translated a mo- the most excellent way. Yet I show you the most excellent way. So there's a contrast between the best gifts and the most excellent way. Well, the most excellent way, as we're going to see when we get in 1 Corinthians 13, has to do with advancing to spiritual maturity and demonstrating personal love for God and impersonal love for all mankind. And that, there's an interesting conclusion. Look at the end of verse, I mean, the end of chapter 13. Chapter 13, verse 13, Paul says, and now continue, it's translated abide, but a better sense is continue, and now, that is, now in the church age, continue faith, hope, love, these three, but the what? The greatest. See, there's that same word, the same word there that we have in verse uh, 31 of chapter 12. The greatest is what? Love. So you can't say, you cannot say that when Paul says earnestly desired the best or the greatest, he's not talking about love because he uses the word gifts. But there's a tongue-in-cheek there because he's going to show a the most excellent way but the most excellent way is really built on desiring the best. Now, how can he say the best? What's going on here? Well, when you use a superlative adjective, there's obviously a ranking of different options. Some are better than others, and he is going to say, desire the best. Well, what are the best? Well, look, go back to verse 28. In verse 28... Paul ranks the spiritual gifts, but he only ranks the first three. So you have the first three that are set in this context above all of the other spiritual gifts. 
and we read in verse 28, And God has appointed these in the church, first apostles, second prophets, third teachers. And after that, then he, then he just lumps them all together, miracles, gifts of healing, helps, administrations, varieties of tongues. Those are not ranked according to order. The only ones that have a priority are what? Three communication gifts, apostles, prophets, and teachers. Now, in Ephesians chapter 4, 11 and 12, there is a ranking or there's a listing of four different gifts. He himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers. Of the list in, in 1228, compared to Ephesians 4.11, evangelist is not mentioned in 1 Corinthians 12, and there's a difference, I believe, between the gift of teacher and the gift of pastor-teacher. But the emphasis on a teacher or pastor teacher is still the same, and that is communication of doctrine. Now, we know that the gift of apostle was a temporary gift. The gift of prophet was a temporary gift. So we can't desire those anymore. What are you to desire? You're to desire the best, which is the gift of teaching, the gift of pastor teacher. That's your priority. The priority for the believer is on the gift of pastor-teacher, not because the pastor is someone special, not because you should desire to have that gift because you don't have anything to say about what gift you have, but as a body of believers, your priority should be on having a pastor-teacher who communicates the Word of God so you can grow spiritually. See, the end result is the important thing. It's not having a good pastor-teacher who stimulates your thought, who's a great speaker, who is easy to listen to, amuse, whatever your qualifications may be, but the purpose for having a pastor teacher is to reach a certain end, and that is spiritual maturity. In Ephesians 4, we're told that these communication gifts are given for the equipping of the saints for the what? For the work of ministry. See, the goal is work of ministry. You look at Ephesians chapter 2. Verse 10 says that we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. Now, that's not going out and doing good deeds. That's talking about divine good, that which is produced under the filling of the Holy Spirit. It has to do with character first, spiritual growth, and application in terms of Christian service second. Now, I keep hitting on this idea of Christian service because there, that is an important function in the body of Christ. It is not a means to spiritual growth. Don't go around getting on some kind of a guilt trip thinking that I have to be involved in spiritual service so I can earn rewards at the judgment seat of Christ. I have to get involved in spiritual service so I can grow spiritually. That's not it. You have a role to play, though. Each one of us has a role to play in terms of our spiritual gift and to utilize that for the overall health of the body of Christ, not just the local church, but the body of Christ universal. And whenever we fail or falter, then it has a negative impact on the rest of the body of Christ. That's what Paul said in first, verse 26 of 1 Corinthians 12. If one member suffers, all the members suffers with it. Or if one member is honored, then all the members rejoice with it. So the best, 
When we read that we are to desire the best, the primary idea that comes across there is a desire for good teachers who can take us to spiritual maturity, not just so we can be spiritually mature, but so that we can function in excellence in our own spiritual gift. But what underlies the function of that spiritual gift is growth to maturity where we master the love triplex, personal love for God, impersonal love for all mankind, and occupation with Christ. And that is why Paul shifts in verse uh, from verse 31 to chapter 13 to love. He says at the conclusion of verse 31, I show you the most excellent way. And here we have the Greek preposition kata plus the adjective huperbole, which is where we get our English word hyperbole. And it doesn't have an article in the Greek because, as so often happens in various constructions, when you put a preposition with the noun, the preposition replaces replaces the article, but when you translate it into English, it should not be translated as an indefinite, but as a definite noun. I show you the most excellent way. It is, the, the phrase indicates doing something to a surpassing degree or exceedingly. So the best translation is, I show you the most excellent way. And the most excellent way relates to spiritual maturity. What characterizes the mature believer is going to be the operation of love. This is what Jesus said to his disciples in John 13, 34 and 35, is by this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And this concept of impersonal love is what undergirds and is the foundation for Christian service. Remember, Jesus said, I didn't come to be served, but to serve. See, that becomes the, the testimony of the maturing believer that, that is in opposition to Satan in the angelic, in the angelic conflict. Satan's modus operandi is to be served. When the believer advances to spiritual maturity and it works itself out in terms of Christian service, and Christian service manifests itself in many different ways under the category of ambassadorship. It can involve witnessing, giving, teaching in prep school. It can involve all kinds of unseen and unheralded activities, uh, prayer for one another, uh, taking care of, uh, of people in terms of various uh, physical and financial situations. But it is the idea of giving up. Whenever you get involved in any kind of service, you're giving up what you want to do to do what is right. You're operating on a higher standard than personal pleasure and personal benefit. But you can't do that. You won't do that legitimately until you have grown to the stage where you're manifesting some level of impersonal love. And that can only happen if you're studying the Word and growing to maturity. So the the discussion on love in chapter 13 is not some rabbit trail that Paul runs down in the middle of this discussion on spiritual gifts. It fits perfectly in the context. And let's just take a few points in terms of, of introduction. In the first three verses... 
Paul is going to demonstrate in one of the most beautiful pieces of prose ever written the priority of love and the surpassing excellence of love. In this, these three verses, what Paul shows is love, and I'm using that as a broad term. It includes all three categories, personal love for God the Father, impersonal love for all mankind, and occupation with Christ. That love is the sine qua non. Now, that's a Latin phrase that means without which nothing. Love is the sine qua non of the Christian life. That means if you ain't got love, you ain't got nothing. Just to bring it down in everyday language. Love is, if, if love isn't there, it doesn't matter what else you're doing. It's not worth anything. It's all human good. It's all works of the flesh. Love is the without which nothing of spiritual service. It's love that's the prerequisite for doing anything that is divine good. That's why you have this contrast. That put it together with Galatians 5, you have two realms in which you operate. You're either operating on the power of the flesh, the sin nature, or you're operating on the power of the Holy Spirit. The orientation of the flesh is arrogance, and the flesh always produces either personal sin or human good. Human good is the wood, hay, and straw that's burned up at the judgment seat of Christ. The orientation of walking by the Holy Spirit is going to be love as exemplified by the fact that this is the first fruit that's mentioned in the list of production for the Holy Spirit beginning in Galatians 5.20. For the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness. Love is the orientation of the believer who is walking by means of the Holy Spirit. As soon as he stops walking on love, which is personal love for God the Father, which is motivation in the spiritual life, and that will produce impersonal love for all mankind, as soon as he starts operating on a self-centered or arrogant viewpoint, he's crashed and burned in his spiritual life. That's why immature believers spend maximum amount of time out of fellowship in a minimum amount of time in fellowship. But the more they take in the word, the more they're going to advance. So love, is, we see from this that love is the polar opposite of arrogance and self-love and that we have to take in the word of God under the filling of the Holy Spirit or we will never get beyond arrogance. Now, one other thing I want, to, want you to be aware of, arrogance operates on self-deception. Arrogance has made you think that you're not arrogant. Arrogance is what makes you think that this doesn't apply to me. This applies to somebody else. I'm nice, I'm kind. What we want to do is we want to define arrogance in some sort of uh, extreme, off-the-charts, hyperbolic concept that we don't fit. But the Bible says that the orientation of everyone, no matter how much pseudo-humility they might have, no matter how, how much establishment enforced humility a person might have, the only reason they're humble is to get something. They know that it's best for them, and so it ultimately boils down to a self-oriented framework. 
The unbeliever can't do anything but operate on the sin nature, and the orientation of the sin nature is arrogance, so that means no matter how how wonderful they may be, no matter how much uh, uh, of a level, certain level of integrity they might have or a certain level of uh, of honor that they might have, it still flows from an orientation of arrogance. Now, as we get into chapter 13... We'll also notice that he interacts or takes love and uses it to interact with certain spiritual gifts. In the first verse, the focus is on the gift of tongues and gift of languages, actually. In the second verse, it's countered to prophecy and knowledge and faith. Now, in those two verses, all of those four are temporary gifts or sign gifts. Then in verse 3, Paul is contrasting love to pseudo-spirituality. This is a false view of Christian service. So you have a biblical view of Christian service, which is grow to spiritual maturity, and as a result of your spiritual growth, you'll manifest your your spiritual gift, you're not passive to it, though it just isn't going to happen. See, some people get the idea that if they just sit in Bible class, take a bunch of notes, then five years from now, somehow God the Holy Spirit is going to start making me uh, operate in realms of spiritual service. The Holy Spirit is never going to make you do anything. As you grow and mature and you make decisions to apply the Word, sooner or later you're going to get options to do something. You're going to hear about specific needs in various places, whether it has to do with a missionary, whether it has to do with a need to work in the nursery here. And I've heard that people have said, well, you know, I'm just not going to do that. It's more important for me to be in Bible class than it is to be down in the nursery. Well, you just failed that test miserably. You're just operating on a self-absorbed concept that you want to sit here and, and uh, soak up doctrine rather than get involved in any kind of application of doctrine. So you might as well stay at home because you're a failure. See, Christian service operates in a lot of different categories, and there has to be some maturity. It's not always doing what we like to do. It's not always doing what we want to do. Last month, I went down to a, a Christian camp down in Texas to help celebrate the birthday of the founder of the camp. He turned 90 years old. And I, uh, when I went down there, I was spent a lot of time with a good friend of mine I grew up with at that camp. And, and back when we were in high school and college, we, we took off at least, and I know in college, I was up there almost every weekend working at all these different weekend camps, leading trail rides and, you know, mucking out the barn and, and uh, washing dishes and doing all kinds of things. And and so uh, this other fellow and I got there a little early. I guess we, we both got there Friday evening, and it was Saturday morning, and they were it was a beautiful day, 75, 80-degree weather, absolutely gorgeous Central Texas day for this outdoor gathering. And here we are. I mean, we're both 50 years old now, and we're sitting out here, and it's time to set up all the chairs and so he and I and two other guys set up chairs, and we looked at each other and we said, we were doing this 30 years ago. Where are the 19 and 20 and 23-year-olds who should be doing this now so that we can sit over there and watch them and talk about the good old days? You see, what's happening in the younger generation 
And I'm hearing this from more and more people. I talked to a man at a church I know who operates in the audiovisual department of that church, and, and he's been working at, at that particular uh, area of Christian service in that congregation for probably 20, 25 years since he was in his late 20s. He said, you know, the 20-year-olds aren't even interested in helping We've got deacons in this church who started serving as deacons in this church, which involves self-sacrifice, when they were in their 30s. We've got 30-year-olds in this church who aren't even thinking about it yet and should be. They've been around long enough. There's something that's happening in the younger generations that's got them so self-absorbed that they're not at all interested in either the Christian life doctrine or spiritual service. And that's a tragedy because what that says about the future of this country is nothing but destruction. You've got to pass on to the next generation. The 20, when you hit 28, 29, 30 years of age, you should be thinking about your role as a believer in the local body of Christ and how you can serve that local body of Christ. So, there's a lot of pseudo-spirituality because what happens is you get people who get caught up and I'm going to do, 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 and they think that that somehow impresses people, and that's what Paul is going to counter in verse 3. Another observation, number four, is that love is the key idea all through this chapter. That's indicated by the fact that the noun agape is used ten times in this chapter. Ten times in this chapter. What's unique about that is that outside of the Bible, the noun agape is rarely used. The standard word that was used for love in everyday Greek was eros, and it had more to do with a sexual or an emotional or a sentimental type of love, which is how most people in our culture use the word love. They don't know any better. So under the inspiration of God the Holy Spirit, the writers of Scripture used the noun agape and really invested it with new meaning. And it has to do with, with a mental attitude volition, a decision to act with care, concern, respect, and regard for someone. And the model is God the Father at, in the plan of salvation. How do you know what love is? Most of you think in terms of your own experience. But see, God is love. Your definition of love comes from how God manifests himself, not what you think love is. See, most people think of love in terms of how they feel or somebody they knew that was very kind and very generous, and that has nothing to do with it. So you define love from the creator. The love that we have in our experience is simply a reflection of the Creator who designed man a certain way to reflect who and what he is. But you don't define the concept by your experience and then impose that on God. You go to God, you study God, you study the plan of salvation, you study what was involved in salvation, and look at the characteristics there and then unpack that to know what love is. So that's what we'll do when we get into verse 4 and following. And it starts itemizing various uh, characteristics. Now, this chapter is going to emphasize the fact that, that love really flows 
out of a certain growth process. You start with grace orientation. If you don't understand grace, you can't love. Because love means dealing with people not on the basis of what they deserve, but on what they don't deserve. Love means forgiveness. It involves forgiveness. Not just overlooking faults, but genuine forgiveness. Not just ignoring failures, but genuine forgiveness. Not just acting as if it doesn't happen. And to understand how to do that, you have to understand grace. And to understand grace, you have to go back to the cross and understand that Jesus Christ paid the penalty for your sins when you were an enemy of God. When everything in your life and my life was hostile to God, God loved us in such a way that he sent his son to die on the cross as a substitute for us. So that's grace orientation. That leads to a personal love for God. The more you understand grace the more you're going to be impressed with what God did. The more you're impressed with what God did, the more that should motivate you. Personal love for God, the more you understand the depths and dimensions of God's plan of salvation, the more you should appreciate all that God did for you, and that should generate uh, a personal love for God. Because love is virtue-dependent, and the virtue in our love is not from us, it's from God that then leads to impersonal love for all mankind. Part of the function of impersonal love for all mankind has to do with Christian service. Because who are we serving? We're serving the Lord Jesus Christ in relationship to other believers. So spiritual gifts operate at their most efficient level once we have gone through this stair-step advance. Now, another point in terms of observation is that this chapter fits the broader context introduced back in chapter 8, verse 1. There, we're told that gnosis makes arrogance, translated knowledge, but it's not knowledge in the sense of epinosis. It's gnosis. It's just academic knowledge, just people who come and fill their Bible doctrine notebooks up and then don't apply anything. Gnosis makes arrogant, but love edifies. See, once again, you get back to the fact that love operates within that sphere of walking by the Holy Spirit, and that leads to edification, spiritual growth. It involves the fact that that um, they had a problem in Corinth with those who were going out and eating food sacrificed to idols, even though it created a stumbling block for immature believers. What was the problem? No love. No impersonal love for all mankind. No willingness to give up personal rights because it helped others. Then there was a problem with order in worship in chapter 11, where you had men and women operating outside their divinely uh, established roles. So you didn't have submission in various authority spheres, and that was a breakdown, once again, of personal love for God and impersonal love for others. See, part of responding in authority, part of the role of the husband loving the wife and the wife being in submission to the husband is an operation, and application of impersonal love. Then there were problems at the Lord's table because they were more concerned with eating their own food and getting drunk on the uh, communion wine, and so it was once again a manifestation of arrogance rather than love. That was the second half of chapter 11, and then in chapters 12 through 14, there, there's uh, arrogant absorption, arrogant focus on the spiritual gifts, and so there's a breakdown there. Now this chapter in, verse thir- in chapter 13 just really 
slaps the Corinthian believers in the face as much as it does modern, self-absorbed, self-indulgent, 21st century believers who just show up at church every now and then or who are too concerned about the details in their own life to have any genuine concern or impersonal love for anyone else. Well, we'll begin our exegesis of... (coughs) Excuse me. We'll begin our exegesis of chapter 13, verse 1. Uh, next time, as we get into what I consider to be one of the most important chapters in the Bible for several different reasons, not only because of its clear definition of what love is and what it is not, but also because of what is covered in the second part of the chapter, and that is the, the its relationship to spiritual gifts, the temporary gifts, and the permanence of love with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word this morning, to be challenged by the truth of your word, to begin to focus on this crucial topic, this crucial doctrine of love that includes personal love for you as well as impersonal love for others as a foundation for so many facets of our spiritual life. To understand love, we must understand the cross. At the cross, you demonstrated your love for us. You demonstrated what real love is. Jesus Christ came not to be served, but to serve. You sent your Son to take on humanity, to go through all of the pain, the misery, the suffering that was involved in a creature, in the Creator living amongst sinful, fallen creatures. And then he went to the cross, and then there was the unspeakable, the unimaginable pain that he encountered as he bore this sin penalty for the world. Jesus Christ died on the cross, and he paid the penalty for every sin. So if you're here this morning, and you're without without hope or without a certainty of eternal life, you can have a certainty of eternal life right now. You can make it sure. All you have to do is put your faith alone in Christ alone. Jesus Christ paid the penalty for every sin. So the Scripture says there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. So right now, right where you sit, you can determine your eternal destiny. All you have to do is trust, rely upon Christ alone for salvation. It's not a matter of works. It's not a matter of impressing God. It's not a matter of ritual. Is simply a matter of exclusive trust and reliance upon the work of Christ on the cross. Father, we pray that you would challenge us with the things that we have studied this morning. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.